0: Welcome to episode number two of Nurturing Financial Freedom. I'm John Jagay, along with Ed Lambert and Alex Cabot, managing partners of Birch Run Financial and Financial Advisors with Raymond James Financial Services. Welcome back, guys. Good to be talking to you again. Thanks, Jag. It's great to be back. Yeah, thanks for having us, Jag. We had so much fun in the first episode, we thought we'd bring you back for a second episode, and we have a lot to cover today. We're ready and fire away. All right, let's jump right into it. Almost summer vacation time. Kids getting out of school here soon vacations, you know, whether you want to spend the time uh, going down to rent something, go somewhere different every year, or maybe buy a property and rent it out for part of the year. So when it comes to vacations, is it a better idea to buy a property or to rent a property? That is a question we get quite frequently from
1: people who are approaching retirement, people who have spent a lot of time in warmer climates and want to maybe spend a little bit more time throughout the year in, in a different place. We get the question a lot and we evaluate it financially but there's a lot of things that come into play when you're trying to answer that question. And one of the biggest things you have to really question is how much time are you planning on spending there? Right. Is this a place that you'll spend 6 months out of the year and this is obviously for a retiree or is it some place that you'll maybe go to a couple weeks out of the year as opposed to spending much more time there. So that's the first thing that comes into play. If you know for a fact that you'll only spend a couple of weeks there, it's probably not in your best financial interest to buy. Mm-hmm. But if you're if you're looking to spend a lot of time somewhere and really kind of quasi relocate, then buying might be a better financial option. But you don't have to evaluate just the expense of each choice. You also have to evaluate the practicality. If you love a particular location, plan to come back to it pretty frequently uh, or every year, then buying might end up being the right way to go. If you like to vary up your travel, go to a lot of different places, then buying a place would tie you down and you'd feel obliged to continue to go there even if you want to go somewhere else. And if you succumb to that desire to go somewhere else, then... You're going to end up spending more money renting a place, and the money that you're spending on the place that you bought. So it kind of creates a a catch twenty two there.
0: Gotcha. So it just comes down to your individual financial situation, and if you say, okay, I want to spend every winter in Florida, or every winter in Phoenix, or do I want to try vacationing in a bunch of different places uh, every year? So that's kind of the gist of what it comes down to, right?
1: There's one other thing too: is owning a second home, uh, vacation house, uh, rental property, anything like that. There's quite a bit of hassle that goes along with it too. When you buy a place a second place you're building equity it's an asset you can in many cases, write off the interest that you pay in uh, sure, for the mortgage, but you also have to deal with the maintenance and the upkeep and the taxes and if you 're renting the place out now all of a sudden you're a landlord and renting a place for a period of time, whether it 's a month or three months or even six months, you don 't build any equity you don't add to your asset base it's just a sunk cost. But you also don't have any hassles to deal with. As soon as that rental term is up, you pack up your stuff, you lock the front door, you drop the keys off, and you're home.
0: Got it. A term that I've seen recently is an acronym called FIRE, Financially Independent Retire Early. It has kind of a nice ring to it. It's a good kind of FIRE. What can you guys tell me about FIRE?
2: FIRE is a movement, Jag, started by a few popular finance bloggers. Uh, Like you said, that acronym stands for Financially Independent Retire Early. So as you would expect, most of the people in the FIRE community are are relatively young. The general idea of FIRE is that you save at an extremely high rate for a relatively short period of time and then either leave the workforce completely or pick up part-time work that's often referred to as a side hustle. (laughs) I can almost see the air quotes as you say, side hustle. That's absolutely right. You know, I never heard the term until about six months ago. And I I hear it on like a weekly basis. now. (laughs) But in some instances, this fire movement could include retiring as early as age 30, 35 or 40. Wow. The premise is that you live extremely frugally and then build up a nest egg as quickly as possible to support that frugal lifestyle. And as financial planners, Alex and I find this FIRE movement to be fascinating. You know, the people who espouse this type of lifestyle are really foregoing many luxuries that most of us enjoy in exchange for freedom with their time. You have to be much more conservative with your spending than the average person if you're trying to save as much as 70 to 80% of your income each year.
0: Wow, that is a huge number.
2: I know. It's absolutely massive. And as much as we enjoy budgeting and being smart with our money, we do see a number of issues that can make the concept of retiring in your 30s, as attractive as it sounds, it it could be dangerous. You know, the first issue we see is that when advisors like us help 60-year-olds prepare for retirement, we're planning for average retirement lengths of 20 to 30 years. Right. Over this length of time, inflation compounds and the cost of living increases pretty significantly. At a modest 2.5% inflation rate, the cost of living doubles every 28 years or so. So if you're 60 years old and you retire and your budget's $5,000 a month, to live that same lifestyle when you're in your late 80s will likely cost about $10,000. Okay. Now, when you extend retirement, the effect of inflation is magnified. A 35-year-old who retires may have to fund 50-plus years of retirement You know, that $5,000 per month budget could very easily balloon to $20,000 plus per month during the retiree's lifetime. The second problem that we see is that there's very little time given for compound interest prior to retirement if you retire young. Right. You know, by the time most people retire, the money that they put away in their 20s has probably grown substantially. That isn't necessarily the case when you retire in your mid-30s. That magic of compound interest hasn't really yet taken effect. And the third problem that we see is that some of the people in this community invest their money very aggressively and have been rewarded over the last seven or eight years with higher than average stock market returns while they're drawing down on their nest egg. We do see a potential problem when the market goes through an extended downturn, though, because these people are, are essentially selling assets on a monthly basis that are beaten up to create that retirement income. There's a reason when somebody retires and they're 60 years old, they usually don't have all of their money in stocks, and that's to create a buffer for down periods in the market. So you know, to sum it up, we find the idea of FIRE to be fascinating, but we think it's, it's a stretch for most people. You know, we're all for saving aggressively and planning to retire at a relatively young age. But leaving the workforce early to mid-30s is something that needs to be planned for very carefully. And in the end, it really comes down to balance and planning. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. And, you know, most solid retirement plans aren't based on 10-year working careers either.
0: You talk about the massive amount of risk that goes into something like this where you're talking about, you know, the market volatility and inflation and what you're having accounted for that you might still be alive 50 years after you retire. To me, it comes down to also, if you're in your 20s, you could probably enjoy spending money physically more than in your 60s or your 70s. I would feel like you could do more now while you're physically fit, as opposed to later on where you might end up with some chronic health issues.
2: Yeah, and paradoxically, that's one of the cases for FIRE. These people are leaving the workforce when they're young and they're healthy and they're foregoing a lot of life's luxuries to do so, but doing retirement planning as long as Alex and I have, you have to make a lot of money and save all of it (laughs) to be able to afford to retire when you're 35 years old.
0: I'm just picturing, Hey, you want to go to the bar tonight? It's Friday. No, I can't go out. Well, why not? Well, because I want to retire at 30. What? Yeah,
2: yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And like I said, these people do forego luxuries, but the idea of saving enough in 10 years to be able to support the next 50, that's a, a tall order indeed. You know,
1: Jag, Ed and I were talking about this maybe a week or so ago. And one of the other things that Ed brought up rightly was if you retire at 30 and you decide 10 years later that you, you know, either financially can't do it or you want to go back to work for whatever reason— it's a real possibility that your marketability as an employee has deteriorated as you've been out of the workforce for 10 years. I mean, you've got that risk of skill deterioration, and then all of a sudden you're stuck and you're 40 years old. You can't find a job at all. So now you're not just voluntarily retired. Now you're sort of involuntarily retired. (laughs) That can be a problem financially and emotionally.
0: Well, on top of that, you're talking about, like you said, work skill depreciation over 10 years out of the workforce, but also... I can't help but think if I'm a hiring manager and I have a 40-year-old walk in and I look at their resume, well, what have you done for the last 10 years? Well, I retired at 30 because I was on this hot new trend and then, well, it didn't work out, so now here I am looking for work. I'm probably going to think twice about hiring somebody like that.
2: We probably would as well, (laughs) Jag.
1: Not to mention the fact that retiring at 30, what the heck would I do with my time? And And I'm older than 30, but if I retired now... I can't imagine how I'd fill the days. I love what
0: I do too much. It would bore me to tears. You can only play so much golf. Anyway. Exactly. Now, something that you guys are talking about on this that I want to come back to is the risk and stock market in this plan, regardless of whether you're doing fire or you're on more of a traditional retirement track. If you think that the market's going to drop, is it a good idea to sell stocks and then try to buy them back at a lower level later? (laughs)
1: <laughs> Jack, if, if you watch any financial news media, you'll hear market prognosticators come on and say what the market's going to do today, tomorrow, next week, next year. We don't believe that anybody, professional or otherwise, knows what direction the market will go today, tomorrow, next week, whenever, in the short term. It's just not possible. There's simply too many variables to precisely predict what the market is going to do in the short term. And we've been doing this a long time. We've spent pretty much our entire careers in this industry. And we don't fully understand how and why the market behaves the way it does sometimes. So ignoring the actual question part of the question, (laughs) I'd say if you think you know where the market is going to go and you want to make a decision based on that, you don't know whether the market will go up or down, period, full stop. But- I do want to address the actual question, so. I'd appreciate that. I'll do that as well. Consider first why it is you feel this way. Why do you think that stocks are going to drop? Why do you want to sell out all of your assets right now? We can trace a lot of our decision-making to emotion, and the emotion that we find that drives that desire more than anything else is fear. Fear, anxiety, you can call it whatever you want. Mm-hmm. So think about that. If it's fear that's making you want to do this, what will make you less fearful? So let's say you're afraid the market will drop, and then you sell out, and the market drops. So you were right. The market went down, you sold out, you beat it to the punch. Are you more fearful or less fearful now? Now that the market is lower, your opinion was validated, the market declined, Chances are, when the market drops, you're not feeling better about things. You're going to feel worse. (laughs) True. Yeah. A lower market, a market sell off, a correction, a pullback, whatever you want to call it, it won't make you less fearful. What will make you less fearful is when the market is higher. When the market goes up, that's when people feel better. And we see time and again if you sell out and move everything to cash or get very conservative for a period of time, most investors end up buying back at a higher price. And this is just something we've seen constantly when people have 401ks that they've brought us and we know how long they've been contributing and what their returns should have been. And there's a lot of evidence that backs this up too. We've seen statistics on average investor returns that have been well below what they should have been. And selling low and buying high, that's not a good investment (laughs) strategy. You don't have to be an investment manager to understand that. That's a pretty simple concept here, just take my money. You'd be surprised how many people do it exactly the wrong way. But again, it's because we're very much governed by these emotional triggers that we have. We feel fearful. We want to eliminate that fear, eliminate that anxiety. We sell out, and then we buy back in when we feel better. And it happens over and over and over again. Now, the second worst thing you can do is time it wrong. Right? If you time it wrong and you end up losing money or missing an opportunity, that's bad, but it's not, in my opinion, the worst thing you can do. The worst thing you can do is time it right. Huh. If you get it right once, you will create this moral hazard. You will feel immune to the risks that you're taking in guessing where the market will go. You'll believe that you have this ability to know that the market will be lower or the market will be higher. And you will continue to believe that. And eventually, you will probably guess wrong. And that will end up costing you. And that's something we don't want to see.
0: I remember uh, being in Vegas with a bunch of friends and my buddy's girlfriend, now wife, she'd never played craps before. We hit the craps table and she just went on an unbelievable run where she made like 10 points in a row. She'd never played before and she's like, I don't understand why people lose money on this. This is the easiest (laughs) game ever. Like, whether it's a gambler who has a great run on a blackjack table or a craps table or poker table, or even an athlete who wins early in his or her career and doesn't realize how much goes into it, which is why sometimes they say an athlete or a gambler or anybody needs that adversity to sort of check their ego a little bit so you can realize, no, it's not easy. It's not always gonna turn out well. Gambling
1: is often an analogy that's used to describe investing. Right. There's variance. There's ups and downs. And in many ways, it does feel like gambling. So here's the big difference between gambling in a casino and investing in the markets. The longer you play in a casino, the more likely you are to lose money. The house always wins. Exactly. It's a mathematical certainty that you will lose if you play long enough. Now, with investing, it's almost the other way around. It's not a mathematical certainty that you will make money if you stay invested. There's always possibilities that can pop up. You could invest in the wrong thing. It could go bankrupt. A meteor could hit. The (laughs) Yellowstone supervolcano could erupt. There's a lot of ways that the world could end. Fire, ice, you name it. But historically speaking, investors who have put together an investment strategy and most importantly have stuck to it they have consistently made money in the long run. Again, it's sort of the opposite of casino gambling. The longer you stay invested, the more likely you are to show a profit. Whereas with casino gambling, the longer you play, the more likely the casino is to show a profit.
0: I once had a boss uh, in my radio career tell me that people make decisions based on emotion and find facts that justify them later. And that always stuck with me. And what you're saying is just proof positive of that is it's the key to marketing, it's the key to investing, it's the key to anything. People make decisions based on emotion. And I think sometimes we have to fight our natural instincts when it comes to that.
1: We're hardwired very well to make decisions about most things. With investing, we're sort of wired the opposite direction. We have this natural instinct to make the wrong move. And it takes a lot of control, a lot of discipline and experience to avoid making that wrong move. Even though every part of our emotional response system is telling us to do one thing, we should do the other in most cases.
0: It's so funny. It's that way in regard to all kinds of money. When Powerball goes above 500 million, I know there's a gajillion to one chance that I'm going to win. But emotionally, I think, wow, that number is higher. I should really go drop three bucks on a ticket because I might win that.
1: Three bucks on Powerball with the jackpots over 500 million. Uh, after tax, you're still looking at a negative proposition. You're still looking the, the, to lose money over time. But If you're dropping three to nine bucks a year on lottery tickets, that's probably not the worst thing in the world. That is the cost of
0: entertainment. Let's move on. Uh, Another question that we hear a lot is, paying off your home early. I know my wife and I have talked about this when it comes to our mortgage. Is it a good idea to pay off your home early or to pay off what you're supposed to on the mortgage and invest that extra money instead?
2: That's a very good question. It's one that Alex and I get all the time. And our response usually is to try to do both. Okay. If you have a long time until retirement, we usually recommend a balanced approach in which you pay more than what's required to your mortgage company each month while you simultaneously save aggressively in a retirement plan. Now, with interest rates being very low nowadays, we know that some investors like to compare the long-term rate of return of an investment portfolio to the rate of interest that they're paying on their mortgage in a sort of arbitrage play. Okay. The premise is that if your mortgage rate is 4% and you expect to make 6% on your investments over the long term, you shouldn't accelerate payments on your mortgage at all. And, you know, Alex and I understand that rationale, but ideally we prefer to hit the balance sheet from both sides mm-hmm. by simultaneously reducing liabilities Uh, future liabilities, while paying down mortgage principal and adding to an investment portfolio, you can really create a balanced long-term situation for yourself. And here's an example of what I'm saying. So let's say that you're 40 years old and you want to retire when you're 60 in 20 years. Okay, You have a 30-year mortgage at 4.5% and you owe $400,000 on your home the principal and interest portion of your mortgage will be a little bit over $2,000 per month. If you add an additional $500 per month to the principal on that loan, your mortgage will now be paid off when you're 60. Hence, your budget need will decrease significantly when you plan to retire, and you will in turn not need as much in your nest egg to, to actually fund retirement. I see. And for most people... Being able to reduce their income need by $2,000 per month when they retire is significant. Now, when it comes to the wisdom of drawing a large amount out of an investment account to pay off a mortgage, our recommendation often comes down to tax liability. Makes sense. In an after-tax account that doesn't have much in capital gains, this might be a reasonable move if it makes you feel better. Uh, we've had some clients do this in the past, and you know it's worked out quite well for them. In an IRA, this can be a bit more difficult, though, since, since IRA distributions are treated as taxable income. Drawing out a large lump sum to pay down a sizable mortgage balance might actually be very expensive. You know, for example, let's say that someone in the 35% tax bracket wants to draw out $200,000 from their IRA to pay off their mortgage. Now, to pay off that mortgage, their tax liability will be over $100,000. Hence, it actually costs them 300000 dollars just to pay off a $200,000 loan. Ah. And depending on your home state, you could owe state taxes as well. And in our opinion, that level of a tax bite is likely a bit unpalatable, with current mortgage rates being historically low. Now, getting back to the younger family for a minute, we would recommend that everyone start to add a bit to the principal on their mortgage payments each month as soon as they buy their first home. You know, just like adding to a retirement plan, you can start small and gradually increase the amount you make each month as as you get raises in your job. And you know, I know it can be difficult if you have a young family, if your house poor, but over the long term, this can make a very big difference in your financial life. You are delaying gratification, but in the long term, you'll be happy that you did.
0: Makes sense. It's a matter of um, maybe sacrificing a little bit now so that you can have a much better situation later on.
2: Absolutely. And and that's what retirement planning really boils down to. It's about delaying gratification, you know, making decisions now that aren't the easiest, but in the long term will put you in a better position. And when it comes to saving in a 401k plan, The dollars you put away when you're young multiply, and they're there for you later on when you can't really work or or you don't want to work anymore. And when it comes to paying down your mortgage early, you're reducing your income need when you retire. Like, you know, the example I I mentioned where if you're 40 years old and you add a bit to your mortgage each month, it's paid off at 60 when you plan on retiring as opposed to 10 years after retirement.
0: Got it. So as we're talking about retirement, this is a conversation I feel like I've been having with my parents uh, more frequently lately, and I'm sure you guys get asked this a lot. What age is the best age to collect Social Security?
1: Well, to be honest with you, Jag, there's no real correct answer to that question. Okay. But I'll give it a try, and I'll qualify all of my statements by saying that it's a very individualized decision and i think i think you'll you'll understand why i say that when i get to my answer okay but social security benefits can begin as early as 62 for some people mm-hmm. and can be delayed as late as age 70 and benefits generally increase about 8% per year for every year that you defer So if you wait until 63 versus 62, your benefit will be 8% more. If you wait till 64, it's another 8% on top of that and so forth until you get to age 70 where it maximizes. And that sounds really appealing. It seems like waiting would be the best solution there because you get the most dollars per month out of Social Security. Of course, there's a catch. There's always a catch. Yep, You're collecting your social security benefit for fewer years. If you start collecting at 62 and you live to be 90, you've collected social security for 28 years. If you start collecting at 70 and live to 90, you're collecting for only 20 years. So what's the best way to make a decision about that? And here's the reality about social security. Social security benefits that you receive, that anybody receives, they're based on actuary tables. So the benefit is actually calculated by determining what your expected lifespan is from when you start collecting. That's crazy to think that your life expectancy is on a spreadsheet somewhere. And it's amazing. Actuaries are very accurate with this across large groups of the population. Okay. The larger sample size you have, the closer you are to the averages. And that's how Social Security calculates these benefits. So whether you collect Social Security at 62, 65, 67, 70, anywhere in between, your lifetime benefit is going to be roughly the same, assuming that you live exactly as long as the Social Security Administration expects you to live. So the longer you live, generally speaking, the better it is to wait so if you know for a fact that you'll live to be 100, <laughs> financially speaking, financially speaking, it's better to wait until 70. Of course, if you know for a fact that you'll die at 63, well, then collect it at 62, because it's the only way you'll get anything out of it.
0: Hang on a second. I'm going to go down here and uh, reach for my magic eight ball and see if I can uh, get an answer on that for you.
1: Yeah, that's the problem, is that most of our clients are unable or unwilling to share their date of death with us in advance. <laughs> That creates somewhat of a, a, a quandary for us as financial planners. That would stand to reason, yeah. You know, every once in a while, somebody's willing to commit to an age, but we're not going to hold them to it. <laughs> so the things to consider, first and foremost, consider your own lifestyle. Are you, generally speaking, healthy or unhealthy? Are you a non-smoker or a smoker? Are you active or are you sedentary? Do you work in an office or are you a crab fisherman? You get the idea. Yeah, You've got to figure out what are the risks and and what are the opportunities that you've got. If you have a reasonable suspicion, a reasonable belief that you will live longer than average, and all these averages, you can find them on the Social Security website. If you go in and search for their actuary tables, you can find out exactly how long they think you'll live. If you have a good history of longevity in your family... You take care of yourself, you don't smoke, you don't work on a crab fishing boat in the Bering Sea, (laughs) chances are you're going to live slightly longer than the average life expectancy. So it might be in your benefit to delay collecting Social Security. If you smoke two packs a day and drink a bottle of bourbon every night and, you know, you skydive regularly, (laughs) you might consider taking Social Security a little bit sooner. Chances are you might get a little bit more out of it, assuming that your longevity is lower than expected. But what we do when we run our initial financial plan for clients, we normally assume that a retiree will collect Social Security as soon as it's feasible. And we also assume that he or she will live beyond their life expectancy, according to the social security tables. And the, the reason we do it that way is it creates almost a worst case scenario. You collect early and live a long time, and that's a difficult scenario to pass. And we know that, and that's why we do it that way, because if we can make a simulation work with somebody collecting as soon as possible and living well beyond their life expectancy, chances are, barring some very bizarre cash flow need, chances are they'll be able to make that social security distribution plan work regardless of when they take it, whether it's at 62, 65, 70, or again, anywhere in between. It's the old plan for the worst, hope for the best. Exactly, we prefer in in most cases in the initial simulations to err on the side of caution, because it's much easier to come back five years later and say, oh, your plan's in much better shape than we thought, than to come back five years later and say, oh, you have to cut your spending by $1,000 a month. That's a difficult phone call to make. I would imagine so.
0: (laughs) Well, Alex, Ed, we appreciate your time as always. We're gonna put all your contact info in the show notes here, but real quick, what are the best ways for our listeners to get a hold of you guys? We can be reached at
1: our office number. It's uh, 484-395-2190, or you can email us at a cabot, C-A-B-O-T, or Lambert at birchrunfinancial.com. It's a cabot at birchrunfinancial.com or Lambert at birchrunfinancial.com. You can also visit our website, www.birchrunfinancial.com, and all of our podcasts are there as well.
0: If you liked what you heard in this podcast, tell a friend, share it by social media, by email or any other way, and you can subscribe for free in your favorite podcast app. That'll do it for episode number two of Nurturing Financial Freedom. Alex, Ed, we'll talk to you guys next time. Yeah, thank you, Jag. We look forward to it, Jag. Any opinions are those of Ed Lambert and Alex Cabot and not necessarily those of RJFS or Raymond James. The information contained in this report does not purport to be a complete description of the securities, markets, or developments referred to in this material. There is no assurance any of the trends mentioned will continue or forecasts will occur. The information has been obtained from sources considered to be reliable, but Raymond James does not guarantee that the foregoing material is accurate or complete. Any information is not a complete summary or statement of all available data necessary for making an investment decision and does not constitute a recommendation. Investing involves risk and you may incur a profit or loss regardless of strategy selected. Diversification and asset allocation do not ensure a profit or protect against a loss. The examples throughout this material are for illustrative purposes only actual investor results will vary future performance cannot be guaranteed and investment yields will fluctuate with market conditions raymond james does not provide tax or legal services please discuss these matters with the appropriate professional securities offered through raymond james financial services inc member SIPC. investment advisory services offered through raymond james financial services advisor inc bertrand financial is not a registered broker dealer and is independent of raymond james financial services Birch Financial is located at 595 East Swedesford Road, Suite 360, Wayne, Pennsylvania, 19087, and can be reached at 484-395-2190.